Welcome back to 24 Faithful. We are talking today about season number two, episodes 13 through 18. And as usual, my name is Joshua Rivers, joined by Bradley Adams and Joel Wood, and excited to have both you with us today. Glad to be here, Josh. Yeah, so Joel decided to actually show up this week, so it's good to have him back. (laughs) I wanted to see how it would be the first episode back after, you know, Bradley missed two weeks ago. Yeah. So anyway, so we are continuing our adventure here as we look at CTU and Jack hunting down the nuclear weapon and they start getting close and they're down to an airport and they go and they find where they find where the coral snake team had come in where they were and discover that the team had been wiped out at this point we don't realize that there's a rogue agent that killed everybody else but but anyway, we, we come across that and realize that the nuclear weapon is now not under the control of the U.S. soldiers. And so we find ourselves in a pretty, pretty sticky situation. I mean, it's a fairly dramatic twist that and then Jack discovers the bodies and then sort of half an hour passes before anything else really happens with Jackie. He finds that that note where with the plane's tail number on it, where the bomb is being flown. And Jack really isn't in it for about half an hour. It, it's a strange watch, actually. You go for so long and kind of forget that Jack is actually at the airport. They're trying to find this bomb rather quickly. And say, we don't know at this point about the seventh man. We do learn it, I think, in that episode. It is a, it is a very nice twist. Yeah, it was um, watching, watching Jack. I mean, it's kind of hard to uh, keep people's attention when you have basically two full episodes at an airport. But they did their best to keep it suspenseful as far as, you know, finding the bomb, finding, what's her name, Marie. And Jack facial expressions throughout the entire thing, like when when they found out that the first bomb was a decoy, and Jack was looking like, "What just happened?" <laughs> and they basically said it was a decoy. And then when they found the actual bomb, Jack just happened to look over there and see that everybody was standing around. So Jack just walks over there and he's like, "Do we have a problem?" <laughs> so it's just the little things that that Kiefer does that kind of make the scenes like that entertaining. Because let's be honest, it's hard to keep people's attention when you have you know, so much time at basically at an airport just looking for the bomb. And then you saw the dead commandos from the, what do they call them, the Coral Snake team, I believe. And then the whole thing with Roger Stanton and everything like that. We'll get into that in a minute. But it was about as entertaining as it could be, you know, for spending so much time doing pretty much absolutely nothing. They do make those little mini moments, like you say, the, the one where they have the fake bomb and it looks like, you know the tension builds to essentially it going off and then nothing happens. It doesn't go off. There are these really nice moments. I spoke last week about how this season is much more tense, much more race against the clock type tension than season one was. And you get little moments like that where you kind of build to that. And it's almost, it is the explosion that isn't the nuclear bomb. It's the explosion of tension. And then suddenly you're back into, okay, we've still got to find this. We've, you know, we're now on edge again because that wasn't quite what we needed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And of course, then there's the drama of Kate and Marie coming face to face now that Marie has been exposed and the truth is coming out and you see the, the heartbreak that Kate has and Marie just so dedicated to her cause that whatever familial love and whatever that she, she could have, 
is overshadowed by the overwhelming cause that she needs to give herself to. It's incredible how having pretty much completely hated Kate six, seven hours before this, like she is incredible in this. She She's fantastic in her resourcefulness to go after Marie. It's, it's entirely dangerous, entirely stupid of her to go after Marie, but <laughs> brave, courageous, obviously the right thing to do. She helps Jack with the interrogation, uh, posing as a translator. She's not very good, but she's putting herself in there. She's trying to do the right thing. And I particularly love her line when Jack's interrogating Marie, and obviously she's been shot, and it hurts, and she wants to Jack to stop, and begs for Kate to help her and, and make Jack stop. And she just goes, you make him stop. And that's sort of that resolute, like you say, that familiar angle actually is now severed. There's no, this is my sister, she's in pain. This, there is a, a genuine understanding, I think, from Kate and, and actually expressing this of, no, you're a terrorist. You do it. You need to tell us what we need to know and it will stop hurting. And I think that's a really nice development from Kate from being that bratty, investigating her soon-to-be brother-in-law, sister character that she was 12 hours before this, which was not a character at all, to this now. It's, it's a fantastic transformation, I think. Kate was towing that line for a good portion of the season. And what and by the line, I mean the line between a between a character and Terry Bauer level of annoying. <laughs> okay. There's... I knew you were gonna say that. Like the second you started talking, that was the only place that was ever going. She was towing that line a very fine line throughout a good chunk of the of the first half of the season. And like when she was trying to when she was trying to call Marie and she was insisted that Marie was being brainwashed or, or forced to do it and then she starts screeching at the top of her voice that, you know, you don't know she's probably being forced to do it. I I almost turned off the TV. So there was there was points where she seemed to be a bit on the uh naive side, but she kinda won me over a little bit at the airport because I started to see more of a uh logical thinking adult as opposed to what she had been portrayed pretty much all season before that um from investigating Reza to the argument with marie to basically not thinking that marie could be a terrorist so she kind of kate and marie kind of if you want to say transformed themselves throughout the after episode 12 i believe because before that you look at marie and you see like when she was getting ready to get married to razor she had this kind of damsel in distress kind of vibe to her. she didn't really if you're watching the season for the first time you wouldn't think that this girl right here could you know do this kind of stuff on her own or could even think of, of going through with something she just seemed like a a secondary character like a background character that was meant to further the razor story like i said if you're watching the season for the first time you would think that she was that she was the one she was a supporting role that was there to kind of be betrayed by razor or bob and then to in the second part of the season to all of a sudden transform into this bloodlusting terrorist who doesn't care about anybody, shoots her husband, uh, threatens to shoot her sister. It's kind of a, uh, a stark transformation from the damsel in distress kind of woman that was played for the first several episodes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, of course, as, as all this is going on and they discover the, where the bomb is, there's, uh, a lot of things happening at CTU as well, and so we have we have Mason that's progressively getting worse to the point to where he finally has to make the decision to hand it off to Tony. He does a few things there 
before he does that to try to keep CTU in control and keep CTU in play because they're constantly having division and outside groups trying to shut them down because they've been compromised physically and, and all that kind of stuff. And so we have all that going on there with Mason and he does a lot of, and I think this is like really where we really start to like Mason is we I mean we kind of talked about that last week where that's kind of where it started the switch but this is like where if you weren't convinced then these couple's episodes right here 13 through 15 kind of sealed the deal at least for me I mean his last his last couple of episodes at CTU 13 14 it it's I think it, I think you are right it does it will pull in a lot of mason haters for a few reasons one that it's supremely tragic I mean 13 starts with him discovering the lesions on his body and then wrapping them on his arm while he's talking to Jack a few minutes later. And it's kind of like, well, he's he's gone downhill so, so fast. I mean, we've known throughout the last sort of 10, 12 episodes that he's got radiation poisoning. He's going to die fairly imminently. But the signs suddenly start getting worse and worse and worse. And you realise that he's got a couple of hours left before he dies. That's very tragic. He has that great scene where he comes down and, and is absurdly fighting the pain through his conversation with Brad Hammond and manages to keep him away and prevent division and district from absorbing into CTU, taking all of their active cases and shutting them down essentially because of all the damage that's happened. So he, you know, he does that one sort of heroic thing, I guess, um, in terms of the bureaucracy, keeping CTU afloat, keeping everyone there working and, and trying to find this bomb. And of course he handing out the, the keys over to Tony essentially when he leaves. And even even watching it the other day, obviously knowing what happened, having seen this years and years and years ago, I won't go away from admitting that I got a little bit choked up when Mason was saying goodbye to Tony and saying that you're the one in charge, you deserve it, this sort of thing. It's a really emotional, very sad, very sad scene. And he gets a silent clock as well when he leaves. He doesn't die for another hour and a half in the plane, but you know, he, Mason we see as sort of linked very, very cl- clearly to CTU. And so when he leaves, it is... Like he's dying. That is, you know, that is his death knell that he can't do this job anymore. And that's it for him. Uh, well, Mason, when he got exposed to that uh, radiation poisoning, you start to see him trying to tie up loose ends. Like his conversation with Jack, because we know the, the adversarial relationship they had in season one, to his conversations with Tony, because we know what kind of an adversarial relationship they had. And I know I did this during the season one recaps, but I just want to give another shout out to an, uh, an NCIS alum who who happened to play his son. His son's name escapes me at the moment. John, played by Eric Christian Olsen. Yes, him. A very young Eric. <laughs> You say very young, but my note was that he doesn't look like he's aged at all in 17 years. He looks exactly he looks exactly the same as he does now, except with a few less stress on his face. Yeah, he's got the Paul Rudd effect. He doesn't yeah. age. Um, but he, <laughs> I believe that's the first I've ever seen of him. I don't know what his credentials were before that. but And then you go into Mason's conversations with Michelle and Tony and Jack. It's kind of a... I guess you can call it a redemption story for Mason because up until that point, for like a season and a quarter, he had been mostly a douchebag, I guess you can say. So to see him kind of take the reins and even though theoretically he could have dropped dead any minute, to see him kind of take the reins and bring CTU back 
especially after they were destroyed with that bomb and see him take control up until the point of his death. It was a nice little redemption story. I started to, I started to like Mason a little bit on those last few episodes. It was not, it was nice to see him have a backbone a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's very emotional. Of course, the emotion continues as Mason leaves CTU and he goes to the airport and meets Jack and tries to convince Jack to let him fly the plane. Because at this point, we see that they realize that they have 55 minutes or whatever. They have about an hour to be able to get the bomb somewhere safe. And as they try to figure out where they're going to put it down, the president has his team figuring all that out. They they figure out that they're going to put it in the desert but it's going to have to be a suicide mission. And as Palmer is talking to Jack about that, conveying that information that, okay, the desert is the location that they're going to put it down. He says, we hear that the pilot has to go down with the plane. We're asking if, if they had, if they knew what the pilot was. And Jack just, instead of telling him who it was then, because he knew exactly what Palmer would do if he, told him that it was himself he, he just said we have a few volunteers all of that everything about this is excellent you mean to say that palmer would tell him where to go and that is not flying the plane in the desert it would be something <laughs> far less pg that wouldn't have been broadcastable on fox is that what you're suggesting <laughs> something like that right okay yeah it, i mean you are you are right like palmer would you know he's already given jack his death wish once already today he's not going to endorse it again um, you yeah. see that later when Mike tells him like how upset he is. I'm just going to throw in that you know we're in 10 to 11 p.m. episode 15. This is the greatest episode of 24, in my opinion. I think it's the greatest episode that you know there are there's a top five that I feel very definitive on, and this is the best. That's about 204 episodes that you gotta uh, sift through to figure that out, there, Bradley. <laughs> well, you know there are a few that stand out, but they, they, I mean this is just it's perfection. You know. No, it doesn't fit with the sort of expected mold of 24. You know, that no one gets shot in it. You don't see a gunfight at any point. One person dies in it, and that's Mason, and he was dying anyway in the nuclear explosion. Um, but it is just absolutely brilliant. From start to finish, it is, it is all of the emotional beats of 24, their best. It is all of the narrative beats at their best. It's, I mean, the performances are just outstanding. Kiefer, Dennis Haysbert, Xander Berkeley. Alicia Cuthbert is, is superb as well. It is just so, so marvelously built together. You know, I, I obviously go on a lot about Sean Callery, but he won an Emmy for this episode for his, for his three three primary scores come out of this episode. The director, Ian Toynton, was nominated for an Emmy for this episode. It is just perfect. It was a good episode. I don't think I'm willing to go as far as saying it was the best episode in 24, but it was a good episode. But <laughs> kind of had a funny exchange with, with Jack and Mason when Jack was on the phone with, uh, with Palmer and Palmer asked, you know, who the pilot was. Jack said, we, we have a couple of volunteers, sir, all good men. And then he gets off the phone and Mason just happens to walk into the scene and he's looking around. I don't see any volunteers, Jack. <laughs> so it's basically Mason knows Jack better than pretty much anybody at this point. So Mason knew that Jack was intending to go down to that plane. But it's just, it's a really good scene because, like I said, we've seen the progression of the relationship between Jack and Mason from season one to now. And the the adversarial 
type of relationship they had in season one to Mason basically trying to get Jack out of there to you know him relying on him so much in season two. It was built up really well. I talk a lot about the differences between season one and season two as far as character progressions. Even Kim, I'm a little iffy on saying, you know, Liza Cuthbert is amazing or anything, but she did didn't say amazing. She 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 did fairly well. I'm not gonna say she broke records or anything, but she did okay. I'll take that from you. That's a very high compliment for coming from you for the release of Cuthbert. So I, I think I'll accept that as you agreeing with. Yeah, me. that's about as far as I'm getting on that one. But the scenes were stolen, and especially I know you talked about earlier how you got a got a little choked up by the conversation between uh, Mason and Tony. I'm not gonna lie here. I'm pretty content in my manhood to say that I got a little choked up with Jack's conversation with with Kim as he was flying the plane. And Kim basically, at first she was kind of naive to it, but then as the conversation wore on, you could see the realization start to come over Kim's face that her dad is basically on a suicide mission. And the more she started to realize it, the more freaked out she started to get. That whole conversation was intense. And it was uh, beautiful on both of their parts. And I thought even more so than the conversation between Jack and Mason, I thought that conversation between Jack and Kim was even more masterful as far as the acting, the suspense, the buildup, and uh, what the conversation was trying to convey. It's the reaction that you wanted for, t- for Terry's death, isn't it? <laughs> yes. In a way. Like, you know, you went on about that a couple of weeks ago, and, and this is essentially it. This is Jack hasn't died yet, but he is about to. This is their final conversation. This is how Kim reacts. And it's, I mean, it's horrible to watch, isn't it? In the best way possible, because... How can you possibly enjoy the actually feel good watching it? Watching this girl who, as I say, sort of 17 years old, has already lost her mother, is about to lose her father, having the last conversation. It's utterly horrible. It's utterly horrible to watch, utterly horrible to contemplate. But it's also so, so, so well made that you just, you, you can't not enjoy it from that perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And personally, I mean, as a father, I can really put myself in Jack's shoes there and feeling his emotion um, and his side of it on it, knowing that while he doesn't necessarily want to leave his daughter in that way, of course, I mean, we know that he's been battling depression and things like that, and but he still doesn't want to leave his daughter that way. But still, on the other hand, he knows that there's this higher good, this cause that is even higher and, and he's in the seat to be able to execute it. And it's a very, I know it's sometimes you look at Jack and some of the things he does and it almost seems like, Oh, well, that's just, an, I mean, that's just Jack. He just does that. And, but it, you know, it's not an easy decision. One thing I thought was interesting is I was looking up some of the things for this particular scene between Jack and Kim, as they were having that discussion, they, they, they filmed it two different times. One, one with Kim's side as she's in the car and then the one side with Jack in the plane and Kiefer actually sat behind Kim as they filmed her side. And then Kim sat behind Jack in the plane as they filmed that one. And I think it just really added to the emotion because they were each right there. It wasn't, I mean, as they were recording it, it wasn't a phone call. It was virtually in person, not looking at each other, but in person. And I think that really helps to add to it. They usually have a um, sort of an assistant producer or, or a, someone on set off camera entirely that you never you like one of the actual crew reading the lines, wouldn't you? And then on this one, as you say, they they were in the back 
seat behind the other one. Um, and it, it does help, doesn't it? You really feel the authenticity of it. Um, mm-hmm. it it's, it's just magnificent. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, Joel, you mentioned the conversation with Mason as well, which is just as good. Mason having, like you said, that, that this relationship they built up has gradually, gradually, gradually got better and less strained and less adversarial. And it culminates here, doesn't it? You have Mason coming up on this plane and giving Jack this way out that he didn't think he'd ever have. You know, he spent all day wanting to die. He spent the last 18 months wanting to die. And finally, he's about to get his wish. And Mason has come up here and is saving his life. And not only is saving his life like a physical construct of he's not going to die in a horrendous nuclear bomb explosion in 12 minutes time. He's also saving his life by telling him all the things he needs to do and how he makes his life right and how he can actually get on with his life once he lands in that, that parachute. And I think, yeah, okay, we could have had that, you know, at the start of the episode, Mason could have been the one on the plane. Jack could have let him go on. He could have trusted that he wouldn't keel over and die in the next 55 minutes and that everyone would be killed in the horrible explosion that follows. He could have done that, but Jack would have still been the same Jack. He wouldn't have been happy. You know, he wouldn't have been able to get on with everything. He'd have still had this death wish um, that he's had all day, that he's had for this 18 months. And Mason snaps him out of it. He talks him out of it. He encourages him that there's actually a better way for him to live, make things right with his daughter, forgive himself, you know, be the real hero by finding out what's happened, stopping everything beyond the explosion of the bomb. It's so marvellous. I love watching it. I really, really love watching it. And Xander Berkeley as well, I think I forgot to mention earlier, is just outstanding. It was really a, a great scene. When you think about Mason on the plane, it was kind of a, I don't know what the age difference is in the show, but it was kind of a father-son type of conversation that they were having. And first of all, how Mason got on the plane, I mean, he said he told Jack that, you know, to them, I'm still the head of CTU. I don't care. Everybody on the airport knows that it's a suicide mission. So head of CTU or not, why would they let anybody besides Jack on that plane? Because they know it's a suicide mission. So other than that, little discrepancy. He did have the parachute, to be fair. So maybe it was a, I'm going as well, taking the parachute. If something happens to one of us, then the other one can fly the plane and the other one can leave, maybe. Yeah, but that's a bit of a stretch. I you asked. I don't know if I can go involved <laughs> with that. <laughs> but the conversation itself was, because it's, it's like I said, when you see first time that Jack and Mason were in the room together, Jack shot him with a trait dart. So <laughs> it's going to see how far that they, they had come in that time period. Um, it kind of it makes you wonder what would have happened if, if, well, first of all, he'd still be alive if Mason got that job in Washington. So really, at the end of the day, it's David Palmer's fault he's dead. So, so I mean, if you, if you want to put the blame on somebody, it's really Palmer's fault for lying to Oh, wow. <laughs> that took a turn. Oh, <laughs> uh, well. Just saying. That, that, that's an interesting way of looking at it. But if that was the case, then Jack would be dead. And then we'd only have two and a half, or a season and a half of 24 in... <laughs> we wouldn't be talking today. Well, then they could have gave then they could have gave the reins to Pony like they should have three seasons before they did, and we wouldn't be having this conversation. <laughs> but then instantly after Mason dies, Tony becomes Mason. So how does that work for you? First of all, Tony didn't become Mason. Okay. <laughs> well, he kind of does. Jack did knock him out, which I'm gonna give Kiefer a pass on that because of the heat of the moment. But I think Tony was kind of becoming a. a 
Mason Chappelle hybrid. And I think um, I never really liked him as a director of CT because I always wanted Tony in the field. I wanted Tony in the field more, and I knew that, that wasn't re- there wasn't really a need for that as director of CT. So I didn't really too much like him in that one. But at the same time, they really didn't have anybody else to give it to. And you notice throughout the entire getting on the Michelle Desson, you'll notice throughout the entire run of 24, Jack always has this female in the background that's willing to risk her job to help him basically break the law and go rogue and do what he needs to do and things like that. And I didn't really notice it until I saw Michelle. And then I was thinking about Nina, Chloe, and everybody else. And I was thinking that, wow, Jack always has this female that's willing to risk her job to help him go rogue. And we haven't talked, well, I haven't talked enough about Michelle Dessler and her run so far. I thought season two was, uh, I thought she did pretty well in season two as far as they didn't bring her in as kind of, I mean, they brought her in as the new girl, but they didn't bring her in as the new girl who was trying to find her footing and didn't really know what she You know, from the first time we saw Michelle, we kind of got an idea in our heads that, okay, she knows what she's doing. You know, the season two starts 18 months later, so she's probably, if I'm to guess, I haven't read up on it, if I'm to guess, she probably started shortly after Nina was arrested. So she's probably been there a decent amount of time by this point. So she really knew what she was doing. And I really enjoyed, uh, more than I thought I would, I really enjoyed uh, Michelle's scenes and the way she, especially during the, from episode, from the Cypress recordings on, I really started to kind of warm up to Michelle a little bit because I saw a little bit more of her personality. She almost exists as like kind of part of the furniture, doesn't she, for the first 12, 13, 14 episodes. And not in a bad way. Like you say, she feels ingrained. It's not like she's, She's new to us, but she's not new to them. She's not She's not like Paula at the start of the season. She's not like Chloe in season three, Edgar in season four, et cetera, et cetera, who there and we meet them and they're also kind of just meeting everyone else. And it's a little bit weird and they're a little bit, there's a little bit of sort of integration issues with this. She is very much there. She's very much one of the people and we just kind of have to get on with it. And like you say, when it comes to this with the Cypress recording and going behind Tony's back, it's, I mean, the stuff going behind Tony's back is a little bit weird. Um, to watch, particularly having seen, first of all, obviously, future seasons and, and knowing where they get to, but even seeing in the context of sort of seven, eight hours before them agreeing to go on this date, if they save at Los Angeles from a nuclear bomb, it's kind of weird and jarring to see how that relationship almost seems to sour very, very quickly. And then, as we'll come to learn, it, it unsours very, very quickly. But yeah, you know, going against Tony, working with Jack, doing what she thinks is right. It's very noble and I do enjoy watching it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I think she's almost a, not quite as intense, but female version of Jack in that she's very observant and has a good intuition, but and she cares. She wants to do the right thing. On the one hand, she wants to follow the rules and do what she's supposed to, but she also wants to do as right, which isn't always following what everybody else is saying is right and we see this obviously as they find the recording and she's like wait a minute there's there's something that's off here as, as they're talking to Syeda Lee that she's like okay he says that he wasn't part of it or, or that the, these countries weren't part of it that the conversation wasn't right and 
she believes him. She's the only one that believes him and and she stands up for it. And when she's shut down, she goes to the only person she knows that might possibly do something. And if she can convince him, she knows that something can happen. And so she goes to Jack. Jack talks to him and Jack is convinced enough to where it's like, we at least need to look into this. And of course, then he goes off book on everything and ropes Michelle into all of this. And I know Michelle is struggling because again, she's wanting to do the right thing. She's wanting to follow orders. She's wanting to stay in line and she likes Tony, but she knows that, okay, I strongly believe that this is right. And I have to do this even even if it means this guy that I really like. I don't know. If, I don't think that's the point of I love him, but but that she really likes at least because this is more important than whatever relationship is being built. I have to do this because lives are on the stake or are on the whatever are at stake. And so, and it's quite good that with that you kind of we're told very very quickly that actually Michelle's right, that Syed Ali is right, that, that Jack is right to follow in all this, and that. Cyprus is fake and they are going after the right thing. They're not sort of, they're not, they're not chasing after this and they're going to find at the end that, you know, go to the end of the rainbow and there's nothing there. They're actually going to find something if they manage to get to it. That helps, I think, because otherwise it's a little bit, if Michelle kind of risks her career, risks her potential livelihood with Tony for this and it ends up being complete nonsense, then it, it doesn't work out very well for anyone. I do like that, you know, we're very, very quickly told, no, the recording is a complete lie. This is what we're going for. And then you know that Michelle is wrong, yes, to do some of these things, but she's also very right because she's right about the recording. You know, this is what needs to happen. You know, one thing that, uh, you know, Tony had a very uh, distinct character progression from season one to season two, but one thing that didn't really change is, at least up to this point, is his uh, affinity for following the rules. He's not as by the book in season two, but he's still, to him, there's still a right way to do things and there's a wrong way. To do and I think when he took over for Mason, it was kind of affirming that doing things the right way was paying off. But you see very quickly after he takes over for Mason, I think within like an hour after he took a, an hour or two after he took over for Mason, he, he was on the floor. So, so very uh, not a good start if you want to put it in, in, in those terms. But as we've seen very often that in later seasons, Jack, 10 times out of 10, when Jack has these little hunches, turns out to be right. But you kind of knew when you saw those commandos down on the ground and Roger Stanton said that Palmer said all six of them were dead and, and Roger was like, there were seven. You kind of It was kind of a, a hanging thread that they left out there that lets you know that okay, well, there's a seventh one out there. So, And you knew when they left that thread out there, you knew that eventually they were going to pay it off. Wasn't sure when, you know, at least they didn't wait till the last seconds of the second to last episode like they did with Nina. But you knew that there was a thread out there that they were going to pay off eventually. And they paid it off pretty well, especially when the phone call was over and you saw the, the uh, tattoo. It was a thread that needed to be paid off, and I thought that that was one of the better payoffs when you find out that he's the one that's behind all these recordings. So up until that point, you're thinking to yourself, okay, well, what else is he hiding? And I thought that was a pretty good reveal there. 
It is a great reveal. And you have from obviously this leads on to Jack and Jonathan Wallace in his little hideout. You get some great stuff in there. I mean, Jack uh, saying that Yusuf and Kate are going to be five minutes and Wallace throwing in, and here we are without a deck of cards. <laughs> I mean, he's just Greg Henry is wonderful in it. He's very light comic relief, but also like the most important character in the show in this two hour stretch because he's the only one that can prevent a World War Three. Um, so they find a nice balancing act. And you're right, it's nice to see it paid off. We'd send the Coral Snake crew back in episode nine, attack Jack and Nina. Coral Snake are actually protecting the bomb. Okay. One of them's gone rogue. Okay. Now here's the rogue man. And we learn as well, I think it's interesting that we do get the establishment here that Wallace was actually employed to make sure the bomb went off and make sure Cyprus got into the right hands of the authorities so that you'd start this world war. It's nice to see sort of the threads unravel because you do actually wonder a little bit back in sort of episode nine when you realise that there are mercenaries working against, US mercenaries working against the USA trying to make this bomb happen, or so we thought. It's nice to actually establish exactly what happened beyond that. Roger Stanton having employed them to do this as the cover to beef up Palmer's defence policy, and now no, someone has employed Wallace, someone is overlooking this and wants the bomb to go off. Yeah. What's the actor that plays Jonathan Wallace? What's his name again? Greg Henry. He's one of those guys that you look at him and the way he acts and the way he carries himself, you can't see him as anything other than a villain. It's just some people just have that aura about them that you just can't see them as anything but a villain. And I thought that he played a masterful role in that reveal. It's a shame he only lasted three episodes, really. Yeah, I thought he could have been a good half-season villain if they went that route. He he would have fit in quite nicely, actually, I think. (laughs) But, you know, he got shot in a really stupid fashion getting into the car. Actually, no, sorry, it wasn't even getting into the car. He was in the car. They they escaped the shootout, and he's in the car, and he's managed to get through all this gunfire of, like, ten commandos, and he gets in the car, and he doesn't stay down. He gets shot, and he dies from it. This is how you kill one of the most naturally trained killers, brutal, you know, he'll come and kill you if you are not very careful. Mm -hmm. This is how he ends up dying. (laughs) That's uh, that's peak 24. (laughs) Of course, we're talking about the fact that Jack is trying to get the proof that the Cypress recordings were forged. And there's the timetable there because President Palmer was put under pressure to act immediately to send bombers to the three countries in question so there was just a matter of hours before the planes get there and drop the bombs so he put that in place semi-reluctantly and then when he heard from jack that it could be forged he was more apprehensive but he couldn't back it off because they needed proof because all of the other trusted authorities are saying that the recording is valid the recording is real there's no way it was fabricated and so he's like okay we need proof that this is what happened otherwise we're gonna have to go down this road we're already there jack is trying to get this proof as quickly as possible even putting kate in potential danger as they're doing it as well palmer does look weak in these two in the two the last two that we're here talking about 17 and 18 he caves very quickly. He, you know, he's very slow to respond and everything, and he's waiting for Jack. And he does look, because we know that Jack's right, it seems better to us. But looking at it from everyone else's point of view, he looks ridiculous for waiting. And he accepts loads of suggestions as well in these two episodes. And just like 
bat and he, he he's like okay let's do this it doesn't feel like he's in control very much um so i can you know we're very imminent to a betrayal from mike but you know it makes sense to me i can understand why everyone thought that he was being incompetent yeah from the outside looking in uh not knowing what he knows it's easy to question his his leadership a little bit and i think that was the the first sort of cracks in the administration uh that we really started to get a hold of those last batch of episodes yeah and there's a lot of things that happen i'm, I'm thinking through everything that happens and we just don't have time during this period to cover all of it there was a lot of different pieces. We, we never do. Well, we, we focused on probably the, the important thing, and, and that was episode 15. And <laughs> I'm going to take five seconds to say that the Kim and the robbery storyline is almost as bad as Kim and the Cougar. <laughs> it's about <laughs> as bad as uh, the whole Terry amnesia thing as well. Don't get gel started on about that again. <laughs> about as bad as anything Terry related. And it was one of those things that they just drug out for way too long. I mean, what was that, like 27 episodes of her in that gas station? <laughs> or, yeah. It wasn't that long, but it was... It, two hours. Yeah, it, it was, was... Two hours, way too many. It was. Yeah, I mean, I mean that should have been like a 20-minute time frame. It's like, okay, she went in. Okay, blah, blah, blah. Let's get out. But anyway, yeah, that was bad. The one thing I will say real quick is the look on her face when she came out of the bathroom and saw the, the guy trying to get in was exhaustion she was like are you kidding me not again <laughs> like, like i can't i can't even use the bathroom without being in a hostage situation like this is ridiculous i just want to go home okay uh, <laughs> that's all i want to do i just want to go home and this is ridiculous okay i've been kidnapped <laughs> almost raped gotten fights gotten shot at this is this is ridiculous okay can i just go and, home? and as far as she knew her dad just died too <laughs> with the bomb my dad died my mom died i mean i just want to go home yeah but anyway so we'll we'll have to continue from this point and so of course sherry has a role in the background and she'll come into play as we get into the next week uh, a little bit more we'll definitely have to come back to that as we try to wrap up season two next week so if you listening are wanting to give some feedback and provide your insights in this. We would definitely appreciate that. You can go to 24faithful.com and leave us a message, or you can even uh, call in. Uh, phone number is 405-771-0567, and you can leave a voicemail and we can include that as well. So we'd love to be able to get your feedback on that. Now in two weeks, we'll wrap up season two altogether. And so we'll kind of do maybe some of the little missing pieces we weren't able to get to. And we're still not going to be able to get everything, but kind of look at everything as a whole and things like that. So, so Joel and Bradley, thank you for joining us again. Yeah.